to Voices and Visionaries, the new podcast featuring the female forces in sports media. I'm your host, Kelly Burke, and joining me on the inaugural podcast is sports broadcasting pioneer, radio host, entrepreneur, philanthropist, and golf enthusiast, Anne Ligori. Anne, welcome to the show. Hi, Kelly. I'm honored to be your first guest. <laughs> I'm so honored to have you. It, it only seemed fitting being that you are my longtime mentor, that you should be the first. Well, I'm very proud of you. You're like a little sister to me. And, um, you know, it's been so satisfying for me to watch your career, you know, just grow and, and blossom. And, you know, and more importantly, to see the wonderful, beautiful person that you are inside and out. So thank you so much. That, that, it's my that, honor. It means so much to me. And you've carved out a niche, really, particularly in the world of golf. When you were first starting out, though, what did you hope you would be doing? <laughs> I had no idea what, if there were going to be any opportunities and what they would be. So, but I always wanted to be a sports broadcaster. I was more of a generalist when I first started out. Uh, I covered everything. And, you know, I went to University of South Florida in Tampa and earned a fellowship from the International Radio and TV Society, the same one that you uh, earned years later. Yeah. And um, that program was incredible. So it put me right into, in the middle of Manhattan. And, you know, we got to meet with the movers and shakers in the business. And I just remember going to a meeting at CBS Sports and sitting in their conference room and watching everything that CBS Sports covered from the Masters to the Super Bowl and just all these incredible events. And I just realized right then, and it was this, you know, I had graduated from USF and it was a, a great, uh, a tough summer because my brother had just passed away and I had, to, I was dealing with that. He was only 22, but it was a summer of 82. And I just remember being in that CBS conference room and, and uh, thinking, you know what? this is what I want to do. I want to cover these events. I was always a tennis and golf enthusiast. But having said that, it took a long time to get into a position where I, you know, that, where I could cover the sports that I wanted to cover. And um, so I got a job at CBS Sports, then ABC Radio Network. I broke in on air at the Olympics back in 84, covering tennis, which was a demonstration sport. A woman who was producing at the time needed uh, they needed somebody to cover tennis and she knew I, I knew tennis and played tennis and so she sent me to the tennis uh, poly pavilion to cover tennis and that's when I made my on-air break and uh, I got the bug as soon as I had the opportunity to do that I came back to New York City and started covering every team in New York baseball, you know, Mets, Yankees, football, Jets, Giants, hockey. So I was a stringer for every professional team and college team in the New York metropolitan area. So I loved every minute of it. I covered everything. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the CBS Sports and the ABC Sports Radio Network because I, I wanted young broadcasters in particular to realize what all you did early in your career. You were an assistant at CBS Sports. You were a freelance statistician for HBO. You then proceeded to be a freelance writer for USA Today Sports and then 
moved on to ABC Sports Radio Network as a freelance producer. What were some of your early experiences as a woman in sports media? I ended up going independent at a very early stage of my career because there weren't opportunities for women back then. Uh, CBS Sports, I was lucky to get a per diem assignment. I wasn't full-time. And uh, Phyllis George, may she rest in peace, she was co-hosting with Brent Musburger, the NFL Today Show back then. Um, so at least I could see, well, Phyllis George, she was hosting shows. Um, you know, there are people, there are a few women, really not that many, maybe one or two in other markets who are hosting sports. But, um, but I, saw, I learned quickly that I couldn't stay at the network as a producer or not even a producer, an assistant in production and get, break into on air. So much to everybody's dismay, all the movers and shakers with the IRTS program thought I was crazy, the International Radio and TV Society program that brought us up on that fellowship. And I basically left CBS and started freelancing. And my intention was to get as much experience as I could, whether it was being a statistician at Wimbledon, the US Open, whether it was covering an Ohio State, Michigan college football game as you know a, a runner or a liaison between the studio and the field. Um, I just got as many production jobs and statistician jobs as I could while working on my on-air delivery. And then, as I said, um, I got that break at ABC Radio Sports during the 84 Olympics to go and cover tennis. Uh, and, you know, that was all over the world. Armed Force uh, Radio Network was listening and, you know, there were hundreds of ABC affiliates. So that was a pretty big break for my first time. But I was confident I knew enough about tennis to, um, to do a great job. And, uh, you know, but, you know, there were a lot of doors shut in my face. Um, you know, and, and I always had a very positive attitude. I'm always very optimistic. So I always found ways to kind of, you know, navigate the obstacles. And, um, but it was difficult, Kelly. It was very, very difficult. I was living in New York City. It was the most expensive city, you know, in the country. And I was trying to pay my rent and, uh, you know, trying to, I, I remember going to the ATM, I'd take $20 out and it would have to last me the whole week. Um, yeah, but I did, I was able to go to a lot of great lunches, <laughs> uh, the 21 club for press conferences and, you know, I was able to do a lot, you know, enjoy a lot of great experiences while covering sports on a very, um, low income. And, um, you know, my mom would send me, you know, a couple bucks and thought it was a lot of money and it would last for three days. <laughs> so... You know, there weren't that many opportunities for women back then. And I, I think young women today don't know enough about perhaps those obstacles and those, which is a good thing, right? There's more opportunities now for, for women. But, uh, you know, it was hard back then because there just, there weren't all these uh, cable networks and uh, digital platforms. And, you know, basically when I first started, there were five big networks. You know, Fox had just joined the 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 fray, and uh, ESPN was on had had been on a couple of years before I got started, and that was about it. So um, I I basically, in addition to doing radio, also became a correspondent, a sports correspondent for USA Today, and so I could earn income 
going to these press conferences, going to cover these games, coming up with stories for USA Today sports section, in addition to um, working, you know, getting paid to be the, the, the reporter for ABC at these games. So I was trying to make money every which way I could just to afford to live in this city. And um, so I became a, an entrepreneur very, very early in my life because I realized that if I could bring in sponsorship dollars and create programming that I could, you know, basically do really well. And so I put my business hat on and, and figured it out. And I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> Why do you think the freelance path has been so fruitful for you all these years? There's so many people, so many of our colleagues work for corporations and, and major networks. And I find it so unique um, and refreshing that you've been able to build this huge career and do it all on your own. Quite frankly, I don't believe that I could be doing what I'm doing, you know, obviously the extent of what I'm doing, you know, now and even, you know, 20, 25 years ago, if I wasn't independent. It's not easy. I think it takes a certain entrepreneurial spirit and a lot of creativity and a dedication and a work ethic and a commitment. But I mean, some people thrive in the corporate environment and are promoted and get to a level that they, you know, are, are driven to. But a lot of people don't get to that, um, don't, aren't able to climb that ladder. Um, you know, there are a lot of politics or there's discrimination or whatever the, the issues may be. So I, don't, I think a lot more people are independent now, Kelly, in the media business because you have to be. You know, I don't think, you know, if you're a journalist, unfortunately, you know, with newspapers closing and, you know, um, all these other um, media properties don't really want to pay a lot. Yeah. So I think a lot of people are forced now to do a variety of things and not because they want to, but because they have to, to survive. Yeah. Well, and even, even a place like the athletic who has sort of veered off differently from newspapers, they just laid off 46 people earlier this week. Um, and they were a company that on paper was supposedly doing really well. Exactly. And that's what's happening. We're going to see that happening, unfortunately, more and more, uh, because of the pandemic and, you know, advertisers um, haven't been able to commit, um, you know, to these publications, to these radio stations, to these TV stations. So, um, unfortunately, I don't think it's going to get much better. I think somebody who has um, a lot of knowledge about a, a variety of technology and uh, has a lot of, you know, variety of skills in, in, in our business is going to do much better. And where do you think you got your entrepreneurial spirit from? <laughs> I was always a self-initiator. I can remember when I was a kid, um, I, I, you know, entered my own tennis tournaments and my parents were so supportive. They would drive me you know, to play tennis at these tournaments all over the Cleveland area and all over the Midwest. But I basically organized it myself. My parents didn't know anything about, you know, tennis and, and the tournament structure and, you know, the Northeastern Ohio Tennis Association, whatever it was back then. I mean, and when, you know, 
I mean, I've always had to create my own opportunities, Kelly. I mean, when I was in high school, we did not have junior high, excuse me. We did not have teams for girls. When I was seventh and eighth grader, there were no girls sports teams except maybe cheerleading. Wow. That's devastating for somebody like you and somebody like me who, you know, are athletic. And that's all I did was sports when I was a kid. You know, I would, uh, I was the first one picked, you know, when the, when the whole neighborhood, which were mostly boys would go in, in our back, they'd They'd convene in our backyard every day for, for football games and, and baseball games and kickball games. And I could run faster than them. And so they, they knew that. And there was like no gender bias back then, you know, they would pick me to be on their team because I was, you know, the fastest runner or the, or the better athlete. And when I was in high school, we did not have a girls tennis team. I played on the boys tennis team and I would play number one singles on the boys tennis team when I was a senior. So I always had to create these opportunities for myself. And um, I feel like I've always been kind of navigating, maneuvering around the obstacles and, and creating my own opportunities because I had to. You feel like you still sort of have a chip on your shoulder? I don't think it's a chip on my shoulder. I just think it's, uh, it was the only way that I could do what I really was passionate about doing. And nobody was going to stop me. So I found a way to make it work. And, um, you know, I just think people who dream big can, can, if they work hard enough and they're creative enough and, and if they have a good imagination, they can figure out a way to, to uh, realize their goals. It's a, it's a great attitude to have. I think a lot of people would have been discouraged along the way. I mean, even now there are things that happen, you know, day to day or week to week that are very discouraging. Um, you know, and I find ways to, you know, kind of get around those, those negative uh, things. Everybody has, you know, issues. I mean, it, not every career is perfect, right? I mean, everybody has, everybody has dreams and goals and, you know, it's just a matter of figuring out how to get there, but you need support from other people. Yeah. You know, if you don't have support from other people, then you have to figure out another way to go. <laughs> And, you know, I, you know, it's sad to say there's still, um, it's still hard, I think, you know, for women uh, in today's world. Um, I think everybody has issues. So we all figure out how to stay positive and, and to, uh, you know, basically, you know, knock down the barriers. Sports interview with Anne Ligori is the longest running cable sports show owned hosted and produced by a woman. How did you have the foresight at such a young age to own the rights to your own content? I always had a dream to interview, you know, the most iconic personalities in sports. It was something that I had, I had to go out and bring in my own sponsors to get the show on the air. MSG Network in New York, uh, their programming department, a woman, which I was thrilled that there was a, a woman who worked in programming back then. This was in the late 80s. She, you know, we, we talked and um, I told her that I'd love to host a show um, and where I interviewed all these incredible personalities in sports. And she said, Ann, we love your work. Uh, we can give you a time slot every week for this show, but we can't pay you. Mm. So I basically figured out a way to make it happen. And I went out, 
with no prior experience or or knowledge and and uh, I brought in Volvo as my very first sponsor. Then Sharp Electronics was my sponsor for a good 13, 14 years. The show aired for 17 plus years. And Sports Interview was just this incredible, you know, opportunity to talk to everybody from Mickey Mantle was my first guest back in 1989. Uh, I'll never forget it. We were at Mickey Mantle's restaurant and he was such a gentleman. Uh, he told great stories. Uh, he teared up when he was talking about Roger Maris and his friendship with Roger and about his family history with Hodgkin's disease. And, you know, I just got, it was such a, a great feeling to sit down with these personalities and, and they all wanted to talk. I didn't pay anybody. They all were great storytellers. I got them, most of them later in their careers. And so this was about six years before Mickey passed away. But, you know, Ted Williams, um, uh, Will Chamberlain, Hank Aaron, Jim Brown, um, Sam Sneed. Oh, man. I mean, over 500 of these iconic personalities, Brett Favre, Wayne Gretzky, Billie Jean King, Annika Sorenstam. So it... Uh, it was a great opportunity, but again, I the reason it aired and it won so many awards and, and it aired for so long was because I kept it going. And that was the only way to keep it going is to bring in the sponsorship. So, you know, in our business, it's all about the money, right? So I brought in the sponsorships and that was hard. I mean, I was bringing in the sponsorships, booking my guests, uh, distributing it to all these regional cable networks around the country hosting the show, researching the show, editing the show. <laughs> I don't know where my 30s and 40s went, Kelly. So, um, And I'm only 21, so imagine that. Anyway, you know, it was just a great experience. And, um, and so I've always kind of been a self-motivator, and, and I made it happen, uh, you know, by going out and connecting with these sponsors who are interested in the show. And there you have it. It, it happened. So, again, I mean, you know, I was presented an obstacle, and, but an opportunity and I made it work. So how great did, memories. How did selling your own advertising turn you into the businesswoman that you are now? Well, I mean, I learned a lot um, on the fly, uh, pounding down doors on Madison Avenue where all the advertising executives uh, were and still are. And um, a lot of these guys who were, I don't think I talked to one. Oh, I did. I, actually, one key woman in advertising was very helpful, Loretta Volpe with Sharp Electronics. And we're friends. She's a dear friend of mine to this day. But most of them were men and looked at me like I had three heads. <laughs> you know, wait a second. You want to host a sports show? And you're trying to get, you're, you're also selling advertising in the sponsorships? Back then, it wasn't done. <laughs> It was rare for a woman to host a sports show, let alone, you know, host it and bring in the sponsorship dollars and, and, and the finances for it. So, um, yeah, I learned a lot and I'm always learning, right? I mean, we're always learning every day, which is the beauty of, of life. You have to keep learning by doing and, and reading and, and experiencing things and good and bad. I mean, for every one sponsor that would come on board, you know, 20 would slam the door in my face. So, I mean, you also had to have this incredible resilience and determination to make it happen because 
you know, for, it was hard to get that one company to commit, right? But once they did, they loved the show and they normally would stick with me and they were very dedicated and loyal to me. So that was good. And you've had so many firsts in your career. You know, first woman to host a call-in sports talk show on WFAN, one of the originals on the Golf Channel, to name, name a few. What first are you most proud of? I think I'm most proud of the sports interview show that we just talked about because I basically had to put the whole thing together on my own, the TV, the cable show. And I, and I own the library, by the way. I, you know, the smartest thing I ever did was maintain the rights to that archives, which is over 500 half hour shows. And, um, you know, it's, it's a real treasure chest of um, content. But, you know, I'm very proud of WFAN and being the first woman to host a, a sports talk show. Um, and I, I apologize for that audio sound that's going off every time I get an email on this computer. So, But, um, yeah, Susan Waldman was the first voice on WFAN. She was an update person back then. And that was a Wednesday. And then on the Saturday, July 4th, 1987, uh, I hosted, you know, the first, I was the first female to host a Colin sports show. And that show lasted for over 25 years every week. The times changed um, throughout um, the almost three decades where I hosted that show. But it was normally a weekend show. Again, we weren't full time. We started out being full time, but, um, you know, in the early days, they hired too many people and said they were overpaying too many people. So they fired 20 people. And Susan and I were among uh, the 20 or so people that were fired um, in the early days of WFAN. But we both were able to hang on to, you know, some kind of work there. And I was able to keep doing my show, but then I was only paid to do, you know, the three, four hour show or it's... A long time, it was a five-hour call-in show. So again, I mean, I was hosting this high-profile show, Hey, Lagoy, What's the Story, on the number one sports radio station in the country, but we weren't full-time. And Susan obviously, you know, created a great career for herself. Yeah. And, you know, she continues to be the Yankees uh, uh, commentator. Um, but back then, it was tough because... You know, we had, first of all, when they first uh, hired us, we were so excited. It was full time and the money was decent. And then about a year into it, they fired so many people, including us, and we kind of had to make our way. So, you know, once I became part time at WFN, that's when I started my own production company, Ann Liguori Productions. And that's when I created the sports interview show, because, again, I had to, you know, figure out a way to uh, pay the rent. I didn't realize until yesterday honestly that your first tv interview was with mickey mantle who were a few of your favorite athletes and celebrities to interview well mickey was great obviously great storyteller and he was the first and uh i can still picture that interview like it was yesterday i was a brunette back then by the way <laughs> um i love jim brown he jim brown is so opinionated and you know he's just such a an intimidating presence and we interviewed him uh at east river tennis club which is no longer there but it was on the other side of east river and behind our 
uh, Jim Brown was the Queensboro Bridge, this massive steel structure. And it was so appropriate for, you know, this intimidating big guy, Jim Brown, who just had so many opinions on so many issues and a huge civil rights activist, by the way. And I've interviewed and got to know Jim. Um, you know, I, I've, he's probably been on the show a, a number of times. And then I also had him on my, my show on the Golf Channel. And I've had him on my radio show, WFAN, several times. He's so, you know, obviously uh, a great interview. So that was a very memorable interview. But all of them, I mean, they're just, I have stories about every interview. I really do. I need to get somebody to help me write a book about all these stories because, you know, there's so many stories behind the stories, right? Yeah. So, you know, Mickey Mantle, Ted Williams, what a, what a genius in baseball. And the fact that I could sit down with Ted Williams, you know, at the four seasons in Boston, the day he went out in that golf cart, you know, during the all-star game in the late nineties, and waved everybody, and he was, quite, you know, not well. He was quite old at the time, but his son, John Henry, who's no longer with us, uh, John Henry passed away a couple years after, you know, his dad passed away. But John Henry was responsible for getting me that interview. And, I mean, that's a treasure because, you know, Ted Williams, he was a war hero. You know, he took off time during World War II, and he, he was a co-pilot for – uh, a wingman for John Glenn, the astronaut, yeah. and he also flew in the Korean War. So he left Major League Baseball twice for a number of years to go and be, you know, in, in the war yeah. and to fight for our country. And he became a, a very knowledgeable aviator and, and yet came back and won a triple crown, you know, just like nothing like he never left so i mean so many great stories to tell and you know i love history i'm a big history buff and i just think you know young people uh really need to hear these stories and you know to to learn about some of these incredible sports legends and historical figures of our time because they could learn a lot and it gives you a lot of context as well my mom always credits my interview skills for, our, for the summer that I spent living and working with you. What do you think makes you such an engaging interviewer? I think listening. You have to be a good listener. You cannot want to steal the show. And, and you know, you really, people want to hear your guests. They're not really there to hear you. Although it's nice when they say they, they you know, love to hear me. But you have to really listen. I think also you have to be very prepared. I know you do your homework and you do your research and I hope you learned that from me. You have to be so overly prepared for anybody that you're talking to. And then that, then once they know that you really know what you're talking about, you know, they're impressed and they're like, wow, she knows more about me than I know about myself. Then they're willing, then you make them relax and you're friendly and you're not there to, you know, malign them or, or exploit them. You're there to, you know, just have a revealing conversation you want them to tell you things that they perhaps haven't shared with other people right and to be very honest i had a really interesting conversation on wfan recently on my talking golf show with alex lifeson the co-founder legendary guitarist of rush and i couldn't believe in a, a little bit of time like 15 minutes 
how much he shared with me. You know, he's a passionate golfer. That's why he was on the show. But Rush fans went crazy. The, the link to the show, I was quoted in dozens and dozens of newspapers all over. He was quoted, really, um, all over the world. And, you know, I think he just felt very comfortable. People feel comfortable with me. And, you know, you just have to make them feel comfortable and you're friendly and you do your homework and then you listen and you know, and you don't literally, you know, look at uh, your, your notes. I mean, you take notes and you know what you want to ask somebody, but you really have to, the, the conversation has to be flowing. You can't just, you know, not hear their answer and then go to a, a totally different question. You know, you just have to keep it flowing and be natural and, and really listen and follow up, make your follow up questions really, you know, about what they had just said. If you have a, you know, if you want them to get more into, you know, specifics. And then to me, the best answers and the more, the more in depth you can go is when you let that person take a breath and wait and pause and give that person an opportunity to continue talking. That's when you get your best material normally. So I'm glad your mother thinks you, you learned, a, you did learn a lot that I, I summer. Think, I'm, glad, I'm glad you brought up the preparation too. Cause I actually, I distinctly remember at one point in the summer, I was having a little too much fun in the Hamptons. And I remember you really pounding into me, like you gotta be doing research. I mean, I, I did, I learned a ton from you. I, I, I owe you a lot. Well, I appreciate that. And um, it's all about the preparation and all about listening, really. Those are the keys to a, a really good interview. And being making your guests feel comfortable enough to you know, share sides of them seldom seen. One of the reasons I really admire you is that you have throughout your career reinvented yourself. And, and adapted to changing times. Why do you think that flexibility has, has served you so well? Well, I think you have to do it. People who can't adapt can't continue their careers in this business. And again, being independent, I had to find ways, you know, different clients and different sponsors and, and you know, different um, sources to, to keep my passion going for broadcasting and, and uh, interviewing and producing and covering the sports that, you know, that I love to cover. So it's just really, you know, following your passion, following your dream. And, you know, what I found is that, um, you know, you get to a certain age and there is age discrimination. Um, you know, you can ask other people in our business when their careers, um, other women, their careers were cut short once they reached a certain point. Um, I just think, you know, being independent, you just find ways to continue the, the income sources and, you know, I become a consultant, you know, I continue my on-air work, which is great, but, um, I also, you know, have become a consultant for a variety of companies and lending my media and marketing and PR experiences and, you know, strategizing with brands and, um, getting various companies into the golf business and, so I just think, um, I don't know if it's reinventing yourself as much as it's uh, kind of broadening your experiences and, and sharing your expertise and your knowledge uh, and your wisdom um, with different companies. So I think you, you learn um, as you get older that 
you know, there's so many more things you can you can do, you know, in our industry to help people. And, uh, you know, that's worth that's worth something. So <laughs> you're a brand ambassador for Peak Vision sunglasses. You have collaborated on a, a jewelry line, the Hampton Ropes Collection with Dune Jewelry. Um, and you also have an apparel endorsement with Movets. Um, and yeah, you just showed. Uh, <laughs> Can you see the jewelry? Dune Jewelry. It's the Hamptons <laughs> Rope Collection. This is sand from your favorite uh, beach or golf course. So it's all very personalized. Sand's very different. I didn't realize how unique sand is from all over the world until I got into this business. But yeah, it's called the Hamptons Rope Collection. And you can see it's a, a nautical, has a nautical theme. And, um, you know, there's cufflinks for guys and it comes in gold now. They've expanded the collection. So, you know, if you go to dune, D-U-N-E, jewelry.com and go to collections and go to Hampton's rope collection, you'll see, and you can send in sand from any place in the world that's special to you, or you can go to their sand bank and choose from the 5,000 beaches that they have sand from so it's a great idea so i they came to me and asked me if i could um create a line for them and because i live in the hamptons in west hampton i thought what a great idea let's call it the hamptons rope collection i got the usga involved they um tory pines which is hosting the us open next year um has sent pine from tory pines and they're making ball markers so they do ball markers they do wine stoppers, um, divot tools, and then Peak Vision. I have them here. It's like Chantel. Uh <laughs> Peak Vision sunglasses, I feel, are the best sunglasses on the market. And it's the only, only sunglasses I wear. And they, you know, basically have a dual zone lens technology. So when you're playing golf, you don't have to take them off when you're looking at, you know, on the green, looking at putts. And, um, you know, it's great for contrast and, and reading greens, reading, looking at the, the contours of the, of the fairway. And, and uh, I just love the glasses. So I'm a brand ambassador for Peak Vision. And then my clothing line is Movets. You can see this shirt. This is uh, wonderful because it offers SPF 50 sun protection. And um, it's, you know, it has jouet on it. It's kind of fun, meaning to play in French. And they have um, performance collection and a, and a fashion collection. And I just think that the clothes are very sophisticated and you can play golf and then keep them on and go to dinner. So the versatility of the collection is very cool. So it's M-O-V-E-T-E-S. Dot com. So, you know, it keeps me busy, Kelly. I love all these. I don't represent any products that I don't, that I don't 100% believe in and use myself. So, Why do you think you've been so successful in, in leveraging your sports work now into to brand partnerships with the companies you just mentioned? And, and I'm sure there'll be others. Well, I think people trust my opinion. People trust my, um, the credibility, you know, that's something that it takes years and years to build and your reputation. And, um, you know, again, uh, I'm an influencer, uh, in broadcasting and social media. And, um, so it's been fun. It's been fun because I believe in these products and I think, um, I represent the brands 
well. They enjoy the fact that I can actually help each, each company strategize um, to get into the golf business or get into the sports business. So I offer more than, you know, just wearing the, 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 the jewelry or, or the, the clothes or the sunglasses. I can actually offer them a lot more in terms of being a consultant for a lot of these brands. And so I obviously have my favorites and, and um, those are the companies that I choose to work for. So it's uh, these opportunities are, are opportunities that I love and I love, you know, I'm a businesswoman. So it's, you know, look, if I was, was just doing one thing, I, I think I couldn't just do one thing. Interviewing people is great, but you know, I love the variety. Variety is the spice of life, right? Yeah. Absolutely. It's just so much fun. We're, we're taping this in early June. Uh, normally this month you would be covering the U S open the <laughs> championship uh you'd be hosting your annual golf tournament your charity golf that's right out in the hamptons obviously things have changed because of covid so how have you had to pivot what you are normally doing during this time of this pandemic like anybody it's very uncertain times and you know very disturbing times and um but we keep going. We find ways to keep going. And, you know, have I had some accounts that said they can't pay me? Yes, which is, you know, very sad. And, but you just, you, you go with the flow and uh, you try to find ways to um, not only survive, but thrive. And so, yeah, I mean, the golf schedule is very different. Um, we have the, the PJ Championship in August now, which would have been you know, behind us in May. We have the U.S. Open at Wingfoot in September. The U.S. Open tennis, um, you know, will they have spectators? We don't even know. Um, that's end of August, early September. And then the Masters in November. So, you know, you have to be flexible. What can you say? I think everybody's in the same position. We're just trying to stay well, stay safe, and um, stay active. And stay peaceful. Those are the, those are my four stays. You mentioned the Masters. I, I believe it'll be your twenty second straight Masters uh, in November. What's your, yes? What's your favorite part about covering that tournament? Well, the Masters is just a magical place. It's just so pristine and so beautiful, and um, they treat the the media so well. There's a we're in a sixty million dollar media building. And everything they do um, is to perfection. You know, they keep the course flawless. They, they just, if you have a request, I remember years ago when we were in the older press building, um, I always sit at the, on the upper level on the left-hand side and they had, you know, the scoreboard and a huge monitor in the front. It was like this big amphitheater, but I was going on the air every 20 minutes and I, I couldn't really see that well. So I just asked uh, Glenn Greenspan, who used to be the PR guy back then, and then he became Tiger's PR person. I asked him back then, I said, listen, is there any way you could put a monitor closer to Radio Row? And the very next day, there was a TV monitor right there to the right of me, and everybody on, on Radio Row could see it. Wow. And like just the very next day, they had to put in. So, I mean, just little things like that. They really, um, you know, get things done. And um, it's just such a great uh, event. And the, the players, you know, it's such a prestigious title to win. 
And so every year there's a magical story. Um, every year, of course, last year with Tiger winning his, you know, his fifth green jacket, you know, years after his last uh, major title. So um, there are always magical stories there. And it's, you know, just an incredible place. So, What are the top three golf courses you've ever played? Wow. I mean, I play golf all over the world, but I would say my favorite courses are in Ireland. Uh, you know, I'm a member of Dune Bay on the West Coast. Um, you go up to Donegal and you'll see some incredible courses up there. Uh, just when you think you've been on the most beautiful golf course in the world, you go like you know, a half hour down the road and play another one. And, and it's just breathtaking. Most of them are links courses on the ocean with incredible views. The people there are so hospitable and, and you know, the people really help make the experience. So I would say uh, my top three courses in the world would probably be all in Ireland. And it's really hard to say three of them, but um, you know, courses like in a or, um, Belly Liffin or Royal Port Rush or Dune Bag, as I mentioned, La Hinge. Um, oh, God, there's so many. Now, on Long Island, where I live, we have so many great golf courses. Shinnecock, uh, Fisher's Island. I love Fisher's Island. So that would be in my top probably five, Fisher's Island. Obviously, Maidstone, where my event's going to be October 8th, the, our 22nd annual Anne Lagoy Foundation Charity Golf Classic to benefit cancer research. Um, Maystone's a special place. Uh, Friars Head, you know, so there are so many great golf courses and I've been playing and doing TV shows on so many of these courses for so many years. It's, it would really be hard to tell you just three, but the majority of them I would say are Lynx courses in Ireland. Okay. The match that was played uh, between, between Tiger and Peyton versus Phil and Brady a couple of weeks ago, ended up being the highest rated golf broadcast in history. On cable. Yeah, yes. on cable. How, how does the PGA Tour continue to capitalize on the momentum from that broadcast? Well, interestingly enough, uh, CBS now is going to mic some of the players who, want to, who will allow that because it's very tough to be mic'd. Um, you know, it's kind of distracting when you're playing for, you know, for money for uh, at these tournaments. But yeah, no, the match too was amazing. It was everything right about a production. It was so much fun. It, it would be really hard to duplicate that in a, actually a PGA Tour event because of uh, the pressure and the, and the money and all that stuff. But um, they are going to, you know, CBS is going to try to get, um, you know, very inventive and, and try some new things. So hopefully they will because everybody's going to be watching these golf tournaments because golf seems to be leading the way back, you know, on live television and, uh, and rightly so because of the social distancing aspect of, of the golf sport itself. So um, I think they are going to come up with fun ways and whoever, if these guys will agree to be mic'd and uh, you know, who, they won't be able to say as much as they said during the match, but I think that interactiveness, and I also liked the way that studio hosts during the match could ask, questions. you know, questions of the golfers. Now that's not going to happen during the uh, televised event, but I wish it would, because yeah. <laughs> that would be a lot of fun. 
your foundation, the Anne Lagori Foundation, is the title sponsor for the Awesome Champions Mentorship Program. You've obviously ah. been my longtime mentor. Why is mentorship so important to you? It's everything. You know, honestly, when I was just starting out, there weren't that many women um, in broadcasting sports uh, who I could really go to to ask a question or get advice. And it was really lonely. <laughs> and it can still be lonely, you know, when you're independent and, you know, there are not that many, um, you know, women um, doing exactly what you're doing. But um, I feel like I'm you know, still paving the way. So that's, that's kind of lonely territory, but mentorship is everything. I really believe in helping young people, you know, women and men. And so, uh, we put this, this scholarship together, this mentorship together, the champions program. And it just seems like, you know, uh, the association has so many incredibly intelligent and wonderful women who are pursuing careers in sports media. So that's always very exciting for me to see. And then I do another program, the Anne Liguori, uh Foundation uh, Sports Media Scholarship for the New York chapter of, of Women in Communications. And a lot of incredible women in sports have, you know, there was somebody writing for the Times sports page and, for ESPN. So they've gone on to, that's been going on for gosh, about seven or eight years now. So those women have gone on to incredible jobs as well in, in sports media. So I am proud of what we've been able to, you know, do from the foundation's work from one charity golf tournament every year. And last year we honored Leslie Visser, by the way, you were there, you yeah. remember as yeah. a, our broadcasting legend. So I just, uh, I feel it's very important to, um, to help young people and, you know, to support people and, and not only financially, but also with advice. And, you know, I'm here. I, I mean, I, I'm a, I think I'm a pretty good source of knowledge and experience and wisdom. So I'm really open to, you know, encouraging people and answering, you know, questions and, and really helping people, helping guide people, you know, um, based on what their dreams and, and goals are. So I'm available anytime to talk to anybody because that's what I love to do. I love to help people. This is a particularly difficult time to get into sports media right now. What advice would you have for aspiring sports broadcasters out there looking for their first jobs in this time of a, a ton of uncertainty right now? That is a tough time. You know, because so many departments are cutting back, um, so many advertisers are kind of taking a wait-and-see approach to see what's going on with the pandemic. Um, I just think, you know, to, you know, organize yourself, develop your skills, read everything you can read, be very, very knowledgeable, work on your writing skills, because no matter what you do, whether you're on-air or a producer or in PR, whatever kind of sports media you do, you have to be a good writer. So work on your own, you know, writing skills. Obviously, you know, the more knowledgeable you are about digital platforms and, and the technology behind uh, digital platforms, the better. If you can, you know, work a camera, if you can edit, if you, um, you know, can um, do a lot of things that 
back in the day, you know, we never had to do all those production uh, jobs. You know, we, I, I, I certainly didn't have to, you know, ed do hands-on editing. I edited on paper because I knew content-wise what, um, what I wanted to stay in the show or be edited out of the show, but I never had to actually edit it on, on, uh, in the studio. And now everybody's editing on the computers, right? On, la on laptops. So you just have to have, have all your experiences and, and, and kind of organized and then network, you know, you'll find perhaps opportunities by, you know, don't be afraid to ask, uh, have informational interviews, set up informational interviews with people in the business and, and by networking, you know, you hopefully learn about opportunities that may be out there. So um, it's a combination of being ready when the opportunity comes and, and just really broadening your network. There's a lot going on in our country right now. And without going too far into it, you know, there's a lot of conversations about social justice. And so in addressing racial inequality, what more do you think needs to be done specifically in our industry? The, the world of sports media, especially for broadcasters of color? We need to, you know, have opportunities equal for everybody. I think, um, you know, I, I think, I know in the golf business, um, all the organizations, the governing bodies put out statements that they want to continue to learn more and be sensitive to, you know, what's happening and to create more opportunities for people of color. And um, you know, they, they have different programs in place, but we can all do better, right? So I just think it's, you know, going back to listening and understanding and taking the time to really understand what the issues are. And I also think, though, that, you know, we all are entitled to, you know, express ourselves. I think love and respect are the two key words here because i think if we love each other and if we respect each other you know we'll be a much more tolerant world and i think our world just has to i think we just have to love and respect each other more thank you so much for being so generous with your time today and your continual mentorship and leadership uh not only for myself but just for women in our industry and just the role <coughs> model that you are Kelly, I enjoyed every minute of it. Um, I'm so proud of you and of the organization. And, you know, thanks for having me on as your first guest. And um, stay well, stay safe, stay active, and, and uh, stay peaceful. Thank you. You can catch Ann's Talking Golf Show every Sunday, 7 to 8 a.m. on WFAN. 